0: Recently, I was um, watching a stand-up comedian, and he was talking about a family wedding, which can often be a source of humor, um, tragically. And in this particular family wedding, at one point in the uh, reception, an elderly aunt and an elderly uncle got into a wrestling match and then fistfight on the lawn at the reception. And in his recounting, it was actually quite funny, um, but I'm pretty sure in the moment it was anything but. It's the kind of thing you just think, how on earth did we get here? And what is going on? Um, It was uh, 37 years ago. I remember it very, very well. I was working as a wedding photographer, and I went to a wedding to take the pictures, and everything erupted, and all of the family issues surfaced, and a huge fight broke out. Um, That was not the most pleasant of moments. I remember um, being invited to a friend's house one time who said, come over and be part of our family on this family holiday. And it was all going great until two of the adult children squared off and started literally throwing each other around, trying to do harm to each other. In each instance, I think what happened is the occasion that was supposed to be wonderful turned into an occasion of shame and tears, and we just never want to go there again. Um, I wonder how often that happens in the body of Christ, and I wonder when things like that happen, if God doesn't get moved to tears and feel ashamed of us and say, I don't ever want that to happen again. First time I was exposed that I recall to really feeling tension was as a teenager. It was a business meeting in the little church that I went to. And um, one of the men of the church asked a question of the pastor, and I was clueless to all of the background and all that was freighted in the question, but the next thing you know, tempers are flaring and the whole meeting is tense. Crazy. Um, I was at a leadership meeting at a church in uh, another city in Orange County where I was part of this bigger leadership team and during the meeting, someone said something, they got someone else going and we were all around this big table and they both jumped up and leaned across the table, planted their fists and just started shouting at each other, spittle flying at each other, mixing their breaths, you know, red faced and, and veins popping out and you were wondering, who's going to hit who first? And they're both elderly and one of them 's a woman and you're still wondering, who's going to hit who first? wonder if... That just makes God cry and makes him ashamed of us. I, um, my parents were part of a church one time, and a um, business meeting, important business meeting, was going to happen, and everything was supposed to be going fine. In fact, the leaders had been working on some things, and it was supposed to take this exciting new step, but somebody had been quietly undermining, and in the meeting, that erupted. And by the end of the meeting, there were four key leaders in the church that my dad was personal friends with who had heart conditions, all of them were popping nitro pills because of the stress of that meeting. We've been looking at Ephesians. We've been looking at all of these things that God has done. He hasn't given us a command yet, and technically there's not a command in this morning's passage either, but there is an exhortation. It's a plea. And he's saying, based on all this other stuff, here's where I want you to focus. He's, he's kept us for three chapters learning about what he's done and the extraordinary reality of that. And now he's going to start speaking of, now here's what you should do. Here's what is on you, an obligation to live out. And I'll give you the power to do it. God never is a moralistic Slave driver who says, You got to do this and perform. He's always saying, I want you to step into what I'm already working, but you've got to join me in this. And now he's giving commands. Now he's telling us what to do. And the very first things out of his mouth, what do you think those are? If you want to take your Bible, open it to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, please. And um, just remind you, as we've been looking in Ephesians, He's talked about summing up everything in Christ. He's talked about us having all every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He's talked about Jesus now being exalted and filling everything and us being co-exalted with him. He's talked about saving us by his grace and bringing us into a plan that gives a shape and significance to our life that would not be possible without his direct intervention. And he allows us to be involved in amazing things. He's talked about all kinds of stuff. And to frame our passage, which is Ephesians chapter 4, let me remind you a few words from a little bit earlier in the book. in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the immediate thematic backdrop to what we're gonna look at this morning. As as he wraps up, here's all these truths. Now, here's what I want you to do. He's gonna focus us on an ancient problem and tell us it's our turn to live differently. When God started his kingdom work, when he actually made a monarchy out of Israel, the first king of significance was David. David was the one who followed God and who fought God's battles and he wanted to build a house for God, a temple where God's presence could manifest and God said, no, you've got too much blood on your hands. Now that always used to bother me because I thought, well, but you're the one who put the blood on his hands. He's fighting the battles you told him to fight and now you're punishing him and I didn't understand. It's not a punishment at all. He's making a bigger statement than that. He says to David, you're a man of bloodshed, and I want a place for my name to be established, and I want the king that I will name to establish that, and he names him Shaloman, Solomon, the king of peace. The king of war has won the battles with God's help, but now the king of peace is going to establish the place where God's name will dwell. That's a very significant thing. And immediately after that, it all begins to unravel. It's the kingdom of peace that God has wanted to establish. It's the kingdom of peace that he's building, and yet the moment Solomon dies, the kingdom of peace becomes the kingdom of pieces. Like, how do you have two kingdoms of peace that are always at war with each other? That totally ruins everything God's picturing. And it goes downhill from there. And now, as we come to Jesus, Jesus has come to assert God's rule and God's work in a fresh way. And he's establishing a new people to be the kingdom of peace. The prince of peace has resolved the ancient conflict and reconciled people to the father to be a temple for the presence of God. And he's telling us all of these glorious truths and all of the implications and all of the work of salvation throughout this book of Ephesians and finally in chapter 4 verse 1 he comes to say now here's what I want you to do and the first thing on his mind is that we would live as a kingdom of peace. If you want to follow along Acts, or Acts, um, Ephesians 4 verse 1 if you're using the Bible from the back, by the way, uh, we have those out there every week. You're always welcome to take one. You're welcome to keep one, in fact, as our gift. Uh, but it's on page uh, 918, I think. Um, if you wanna follow along, though, let's just start in verse one. As, as Paul moves into saying, here's how you walk. This is where you've been sitting. These are truths that you just need to sit in. Now, in light of that, let's go. First thing on his heart is peace. I don't think that's intuitive for most of us. I think most of us would have probably thought something else would be first in his heart. But this is what he says. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, And a quick read-through, it's impossible to grab everything that's there, but the themes should be surfacing. There's a whole lot said about unity and about serving each other, and about peace and love. And as, as, as we move from, here's all the things that are true, here's what Jesus has done, and here's what you now have, now here's how I want you to live. The first thing on God's heart is, let me start by telling you, you have got to guard Unity. And you've got to serve one another. That's the wellspring from which everything else is going to flow. Jesus actually prayed that right before he was betrayed and crucified. John 17, you can read it. He actually says, my legitimacy will be established by how you treat each other. They'll know that I'm real by how you treat each other. He prays to the Father that we would be unified and one just as he and the Father are unified in one. A theme that we don't probably give the attention that it really deserves. It's the first thing out of his mouth. It's the first thing on his mind after he says, all of these great truths guard this unity and serve each other. And then we'll go on to other things. That's how he starts it. In fact, if you you like to take notes, let me give you two phrases that will kind of capture it. Okay, Um, and they, they come from the words preserve and serve. Verses one through six could be captured this way. Preserve unity with grace and grit. Preserve unity with grace and grit. Chapter four, verses one through six. Chapter 4, starting in verse 7, seems to shift away from the unity theme, but it's not. It's just saying, now, in all of your diversity, here's how unity works its way out. So, verse 7 through 16 can be captured in the phrase serve them until you see Jesus. Serve them until you see Jesus. Preserve the unity with grace and grit. Serve them until you see Jesus. That's the first thing on his mind as he starts to say, now here's what you need to do. As we um, engage with this passage, I think it's really important for us to just let the Holy Spirit let that sink in. How significant are these things in my own understanding of my walk with Christ? How significant are these things in my own understanding of what it means to be part of a family of God? in following Jesus. I suspect for most of us, I know for me, I haven't given it nearly the attention that it warrants. It's the first thing he talks about. So let's, let's unpack first that, that section, uh, Preserve Unity with Grace and Grit. Verse 1 actually kind of serves as, a, um, if you will, a topic sentence for the whole rest of the epistle. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Right, the rest of it hangs off of that. Walk in a manner worthy. What, how do I walk in a manner worthy? Ah, you walk in a manner of worthy by preserving unity with grace and grit. Verse two, he gives us a, a couple of characteristics that we need, things that we need to cultivate in our heart and our demeanor. And, and then in verse three, second part of verse two and, the rest of, and, and all of verse three, he gives us, and here's some actions to take. Here's some things to do. Four things that kind of all come together to give us this idea of preserving unity with grace and grit. The first thing is in verse 2, do this with all humility and gentleness, and then with patience. Notice the word with, twice, that's how we know humility and gentleness go together, and patience is kind of its own thing. They're all intertwined, but humility and gentleness is a central heart posture that he's calling for. You're going to preserve unity and you have to start with your own heart. You have to be one who walks in humility and gentleness. Not the one who elbows his way to the front of the room and bellows out whatever's on his mind and makes demands. Now that's a little, um, a little exaggerated. But if our hearts could really be seen, maybe only just a little. It's easy in... Settings where I'm with a community of people for me to focus on me, right? It's the most natural thing in the world. And as I focus on me, my concern is how am I faring? How am I looking? Where am I standing? What, what's coming to me? I get, I get very uh, self-focused, and in that process, I can become very self-absorbed and proud and mistreat other people. Right? So he says, uh, here's what I want you to cultivate. I want you to cultivate a heart of gentleness and a heart of, of humility. So I think sometimes we have this idea that infests our community that does damage. As, as chapter four goes on, he's gonna talk an awful lot about the mouth. So that's obviously in his mind. So as we look at this hum- the humility kind of question, and we ask the question of what does that look like in the mouth, here's what I think goes on. I think sometimes I easily fall into a pattern where I think I have the right to my opinion, and I'm free to share it, and I live in community that way. I have the right to my opinion, and I'm free to share it, which is a wonderful, excellent philosophy of life as long as we make three minor scripture modifications to it. First off, I have no rights. I gave those all away when I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So I guess that part of the sentence doesn't work. Secondly, my opinion is really not the point of much of anything. It's Christ's opinion that matters. Now, there's things about authenticity that matter. If I, if I feel something, I shouldn't pretend otherwise, but it doesn't mean I have the right to just spill it all over everyone if it's not in line with Christ it means I have to address that right so I don't have rights my opinion isn't what drives anything so not much of our sentence is left intact is it but okay I'm free to share it yes as long as it is only edifying that's firmly rooted in actually Ephesians 4 those statements are firmly rooted there He's saying be humble, be gentle. Don't be the one that's elbowing your way to the front of the room and blowing off steam. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe the person you're disagreeing with or maybe the thing you're hearing or maybe the thing you're wrestling with, maybe you need to slow down and say, hey, I wonder, I wonder if that makes sense. I wonder if that's right. Right, in order for us to live in community, there's always going to be tension points. There's always going to be disagreements. If you and I don't disagree, one of us is lying, right? Maybe both of us are, but at least one of us is. That's just the reality of human condition. How do we deal with that? It's a heart that says, hey, I don't have all the answers, and I'm not trying to foist all of that on you. There's a time for me to speak, time for me even to stand up and be bold, but my heart is one that's humble, that's teachable, that's gentle, that's not self-promoting. And that lays the foundation for guarding the unity God gives us, which is so central to his heart. Right? The second characteristic he calls us to is patience. You should do this with humility and gentleness. You should do this with patience. And patience is really the idea of being prepared to outlast the hard things from your heart and mind. Having your, your convictions of what is proper behavior, what is proper uh, focus, what is proper direction, what is a proper way to treat each other, what is a proper way to reflect Christ. Christ. Have those things be rooted deep enough that when the surface level interactions are hard, they don't throw you off course. You're patient. Long-suffering is a word that we don't use too much anymore, but it's like I'm willing to endure the hard things because there's something more significant at work here. He's saying cultivate that heart. And then he gives us a couple of things to actually pursue. Um, it says here, um, do this bearing with one another in love, uh, which is a great translation, just as legitimate and probably more on point for our culture is putting up with one another in love. We have to learn to put up with each other, right? Because uh, some of us are like me, right? And I can be annoying and I can be irritating and I can be arrogant and I can be disappointing. Oh, and by the way, so can you and we're trying to do this thing together. There is no way this is just gonna go smooth. There are going to be tension points, and some of those tension points we need to take head on. Sometimes we need to have hard conversations, but a whole lot of energy is spent needlessly because we haven't developed our put up with muscles. Right? I've got to be able to put up with you, you're human. And I can't address everything that's wrong in you because we'd be here all day. And please don't try to address everything that's wrong here in me or we'd be here even longer, right? There's a time and a place and, a, and an attitude and an approach where we do those things for each other, but it's, it's underpinned by this environment that says, I'm not going to be thin-skinned. I am not going to be hypersensitive, I am not going to be the brittle one that's always offended or always pushing back. I'm gonna give you the space to be the mess that you are so that the mess that I am and the mess that you are can be on a journey together with the spirit of God that makes us a little bit less messy in our daily lives day by day by day. Put up with one another. How much do you actually put up with the people around you? How much do I actually do that? I was thinking about that in even practical terms and it strikes me that one simple rule for growing in this is is to live an open and shut life. Open and shut. You just have to have the right open and the right shut. To put up with you and for you to put up with me, we need to develop an open heart towards each other and we need to shut our mouths. Open your heart and shut your mouth, and it'll be amazing how that plays out, how much peace there comes to you and me. We're not talking about when there's time to to confront genuine falsehood and protect what's true and right. We're just talking about daily life is hard. And since I don't have the right to dictate everything, and you don't have the right to dictate everything, it's all about what Jesus wants, and we're trying to stumble after that together. We have got to learn to put up with each other and to do it in love. And so uh, some of us just need to develop that open heart, shut mouth kind of reality. I've, I've had to struggle you know, with my own heart and mouth and with other people's heart and mouths expressed to me. And, and that's, this is an area that really has been helpful to me. Because there have been times that people have said things that are just plain wrong, they're untrue, and they're damaging, and they're hurting me. How do I respond? Well, sometimes I need to speak back. Sometimes I need to correct. But there's a lot of times that's not possible. So I'm praying, God, help my heart to stay open and help me not to sin with my mouth. How easy it is to flip that around. To shut my heart towards my brother that's driving me crazy and start opening my mouth in criticism and gossip and all kinds of things. Paul says, hey, um, this, this unity that you've got, you've got to guard it. That means you've got to learn to put up with each other. Spirit will help you do that. That's the end of verse 2. Then into verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Actually, grammatically, it should be um, being eager, and that word eager is bigger than just the idea of eager. It's eager and diligent. There's this idea of I'm, I'm excited to or I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about pursuing this, and I will give it my best effort. And this is how I live out my calling, worthily. I am eager and diligent to maintain the unity that the Spirit's already given, this bond of peace. I guard that. And I work at it. And it takes work sometimes. I was talking to a friend quite some time ago and he was in a situation where a lot of people around him were really um, at each other. And it was really hard because he was kind of in the middle of the whole thing and I asked him how he was doing and he was very strong, very... um, Stable and, and kind of majestic personality, right? You, you would expect him to just, I've got this, you know, he was not arrogant, but just he, here's how God's leading me through it. And he just burst into tears. And he said, I'm just trying not to sin. This is so confusing. This is so hard. This is so ugly. And I, it's just, all I can do is just try not to sin. Sometimes maintaining the bond of peace is hard work. And I have to be enthusiastically and diligently committed to pursuing that. I may need to push back on somebody who's undermining. Somebody's undermining the peace, and I can't just let that go. There's a right way to address it, but I need to address it. That's hard. That's hard. All of the stuff that's come before is hard. It's hard to put up with. It's hard to keep cultivating this heart of humility and gentleness. It's hard to be patient. But this is where he points this. He says, look, right out the gate, all these cool things God's done, I want you to guard the fact that you're this new humanity together in love. And that takes both grace and grit. And then the next three verses just underpin that whole thing. He says, like, look, you've already got this, right? There's one body, the church. There's one spirit. We all partake of him. We were all called to one hope, that belongs to our call. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's these core truths that we all agree on, that we build our lives on. There's one baptism. We've all identified ourselves with Jesus. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We already are one. That's what Christ worked so hard for. Guard that with everything. Lean into the Spirit's ability to enable you to walk in humility, to put up with all of those hard things. Lean into Him and guard it. Preserve unity with grace and grit. I wonder if um, some of us need to just stop in our hearts there for a second and say, okay God, uh, report card time. What's going on? Do I need to repent of something? Do I need to make something right? Do I need to recalibrate my thinking about how important this is? Do I need to lean into you more because I'm really struggling with the grit side of this? When it gets hard, I want to cut and run. Or I'm really struggling with the grace side of this. I really have a hard time giving anyone a long leash of grace. I really struggle with not just letting, just unloading on them. He's calling us to guard our unity, preserve unity with grace and grit. The second section then expands by saying, and I want you to serve each other until you see Jesus. Right, and there's this theme through here that we serve each other so that Christ is grown in us, so that we become like Jesus. So we serve each other until we see Jesus in the face of each other or until we see Jesus face to face. One of those two things has to happen before we stop doing this. Either we see everyone being fully Christ-like, which is not going to happen until we're all with Jesus, which means we do this until we die. But this section, he's really unpacking the idea of saying, uh, this, this body, this family, we got to serve each other. That's what Christ intends. And he starts by telling us, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has graced us. He's given us a role to play. He's given us abilities. He's given us um, functions. He's given us things to do to serve each other. He's handed those things out for us. It's a grace so that we can serve each other. That's for all of us, every one of us. It's easy for some of us to see, here's what I am called to do by God, and others may struggle with that. If you struggle with that, I just want to invite you into a conversation. As a church, we're trying to really make it much easier for you if you don't know where you can serve, To find that. In fact, that's part of the role Chet's going to play, and we're going to really push a number of things this fall that will help you, but you can start a conversation sooner than that. And it's not just standing up in front and teaching or doing things that you would expect. I am blessed by you in more than one way. I have um, a a resource, I have a, a, a big library, and a lot of education to help me do what I do. But periodically, I'll run across something that as hard as I think and wrestle and pray, and as much as I look, I'm not finding the help I need, and I resort to my PSC, that's what I call it, my personal scholar's commentary, because in our family, God has given us a number of Bible scholars, and every once in a while, I'll fire out an email saying, guys, I'm wrestling with this, what do you think? And then they'll feed back and we'll have this dialogue and it's incredibly helpful and it's easy to see, well, of course, people like that can be really helpful and can minister and most of you are going to say, I'm not telling you what this means. You're supposed to tell me what this means, so I guess I'll just sit here and be quiet. Well, that's a role that they can play and maybe you can't. But it says all of us have been graced to serve. All of us. There's also a group that I call the Ivy League. And that's a very literal name because one time when I was away, they went over and tore up my yard because they knew we hated the Ivy that was there. And so they just came in and ripped it all out. And it's a very different kind of function. Both groups, very encouraging. And a whole bunch of other things that happen. There's people preparing coffee. There's people handing out worship folders. There's people who you will never actually see doing what they're doing. We have a group of people that we affectionately call the Levites. Because the Levites were the guys that carried stuff around and set up the tabernacle. Right? And these... People will come early, they'll set things up, they'll tear things down, they'll put things away, they'll wander around unlocking and locking doors, right? It's not a hyper intense, but it is a very significant way to serve the body. And that might be the role God has for you. We could always use more. We'll just serve in that way. And we all benefit from that. Right now, we have children next door who are being ministered to by all kinds of people, and maybe there's people in this room who God will prod to say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you get involved in that? If you haven't had a chance to look at our social media, you ought to. We have an awesome um, um, Facebook page for those of you that are like 40 plus, And we have a great Instagram feed for those of you that still have life in your veins, right? And they're both awesome. And there's a few people that are part of this family that curate that. They're taking pictures, they're checking out, uh, hey, hey let's, let's highlight this, or let's push that, or let's inform people of this. It's wonderful. It's a ministry. There's all kinds of ways that we serve, not just in teaching or leading some big thing. Jesus wants all of us to be serving all of us until we see Jesus. We see Jesus in each other, and we're finally relieved of our duty when we see him face to face. Starts by saying, everyone's got something, some grace given. And then this next section um, talks about Jesus being the exalted one who can do that. Sometimes in, um, in handling the scriptures and writing the scriptures, the apostles will say things that open up other questions. This is one of those sections. There's some very interesting questions here. We're not gonna pursue them. They're worth pursuing. That's called theology when you wrestle with those kinds of questions. We're gonna stick with the text. But I'll show you what they are. And uh, if you ever wanna pursue them, you go right ahead. Maybe you can talk to your own personal scholars commentary and figure that out. So let's just follow the the flow of thought here. It says in verse eight, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. It's quoting a Psalm that pictures God as the exalted ruler who's active among his people. And, And Paul's basically saying, Jesus is the exalted ruler who's active among his people and he's giving gifts for the purpose of building up his people. And then he quotes a bunch of things that build that case but also raise other questions. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He humbled himself and now he's exalted again and that's who's giving us gifts and assigning us things to do. We can go with confidence and joy with that understanding. Now the part in here that people wrestle with is what does it mean when it says he descended to the lower parts of the earth and most scholars today will say that just talking about the incarnation god the son coming out of heaven to earth becoming human dying on a cross resurrecting and ascending back to heaven he humbled himself and then he has been exalted the more common understanding historically, and still plenty of solid scholars who would hold this view, say, no, 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 no. The lower parts are actually a reference to hell, right? You, you, you know some of the older um, creeds, they might say, I, I believe in Jesus, who, who descended into hell and on the third day he rose again. He didn't serve time in hell, if this is true. It's that he Went there for a specific purpose to proclaim a specific message. Those are theological questions that are beyond our ability to address this morning. The point he's getting at is that Jesus did humble himself and now he's exalted and he is the exalted ruler who is giving gifts to his people and working among his people. So take what he's given you and serve each other until you see Jesus. So, following along, There's a couple of themes interwoven in this next section. And I'll just read this whole rest of it one more time to pin it in our minds again. It goes kind of back and forth between the whole group, the body, and the individual because he's attentive to both realities. Um, And then woven through there is the goal of Christlikeness. And it's pretty lofty. It's not just be kind of like Jesus. It's measure up to the full stature of Christ. Pretty amazing, right? So let's just read that again and get those themes in our head and then we'll talk about that for just a second. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. These are key leaders within the church. They themselves are the gift to the church and they have been given roles that are a gift to the church and they are enabled to those roles so that the church itself can be all of us who also fill our roles and are a gift to each other. That's what this next part unpacks for us. They're given to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. See, there's that whole group dynamic. Until we all, now it's talking about each of us individually within that group, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's that lofty thing. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, right? There's, there's plenty of people who take advantage of us if we don't understand and we're not grounded well. That's why we serve one another, so that we can grow up into Christ in part so that we stay stable and on course. You just have to turn on your TV or listen to your radio uncritically and you will be off course, I promise you. You just have to hit the Christian bookstore or the Christian section of Amazon uncritically and I guarantee you, you will be taken off course. And if you don't know that, then you need to allow people to pour in so that you will be able to see that because there's all kinds of both human and um, this passage clearly implies um, spiritual, like demonic influence to pull us off course. In fact, it says, uh, we're to stand for the truth. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. That's a really important thing. Um, It's easy for some of us to speak truth and be very harsh. In fact, our world has kind of this perspective that we're ill-mannered, ill-tempered, and ill-informed. And reading many of the rants that we post on our social media, I would have to agree. In fact, why would we even have such a thing as a rant if I'm a follower of Jesus, right? He's really trying to address all of these things, saying you've got to stay anchored. You help each other stay anchored. You do that by working together in love, serving each other so that everybody grows up So we grow up into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, right? There's the whole body and yet there's every part of the body with which is equipped when each part that's you and me individually are working properly. We make the whole body, that's all of us together, grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just a couple of quick thoughts here and then a question. It's back and forth between this dynamic of the group and then the individual responsibility, the individual opportunity, and the individual need. That's part of why we've tried to capture our discipleship process, saying if you're going to be part of Whittier Hills, or I'm sorry, (laughs) Redemption Hill, I blew it that time. (laughs) I've been here a long time, my brain doesn't work, so you'll just have to forgive me. Um, Friendship, that's community, that's really knowing and being known. Partnership, that's the whole group dynamic. We're serving each other as a group. I'm pouring into the group what's needed, and together we're reaching the world. Leadership, right? we build up and we buddy up. Leadership is really not saying, hey, take a big platform, do some big thing. It's, it's saying there's a buddy system. You bring somebody else along. Everybody. Nobody gets left behind if we do this the way Christ intends. And we all respond rightly. I can't make you be something. So if you're resistant, there's not much I can do. But I need to have a heart that says, hey, can I bring you along with me? Right? So it goes back and forth between the corporate identity and the individual parts of that reality. And I need to have that in mind. And We'd love to help you find your way in that pathway as you're looking to grow in Christ. And it's to grow into all that Christ is. You and I get to be a part of that. Stop and think about this. You get to help people be like Jesus. There is literally nothing more cool than that. Right? It's way cooler than on Christmas Day wandering around and passing out ponies. Right? Like. I get to help people be like Jesus. It's way cooler than being the person who patents the next paradigm shifting technology that changes the face of the world. I get to help people be like Jesus. It's way cooler, sorry Ken, than being a surgeon saving people's lives, which is a, I think that's a pretty cool thing, but we get to help people be like Jesus, all of us. What calling is higher than that? How cool is that? He's saying, I want you, whatever else you do, before we get into the rest of the implications of what I've been talking about, guard the body, guard the family, love each other well, don't let things break you apart. Have the grit and the grace to preserve unity and serve each other until you see Jesus. So here's a question on the second part Are you serving the family? I mean, there's all kinds of cool things that have been done by this family. I'm so blessed. I get to talk to so many people and just the way people have served. I was talking to a friend this week who I was kind of trying to help along his journey and he was talking about how he had just recently started coming back to church and he'd been so enveloped by love and care and he had a place to belong. How cool is that? And he's growing in Christ-like as a direct result of that. That's amazing. What's your role? We all have one. And if you've lost yours and you want to find it, we'll help you do that. But it's not okay to sit there and go, ah, that's for somebody else, right? There's not really a need for an appendix in the body of Christ, right? We could maybe start a line of, of uh, T-shirts and, and mugs for people that don't want to obey this passage. Um, church wart, that's my function, right? <laughs> Ministry mole. Or my favorite t shirt would be, I'm a skin tag on the body of Christ. (laughs) That is so bizarre and a little bit disturbing, isn't it? And that's exactly the point. It is bizarre and a little disturbing. And if I cringe at that language, I certainly shouldn't cultivate that lifestyle. He's saying, Look, I died for this family. Love it, protect it, guard it, serve it, be it. Then we'll talk about more stuff. But let's start there. God may be working in your heart and you want to talk more about what role God might have for you. We'd love to do that. You may have a burden that you need someone to walk with you and help you with because you're having a hard time putting up with somebody problem may be with you. The problem may be with them. Either way, it's hard. We'd love to have somebody walk that journey with you. There's all kinds of things God might be doing. Part of being a body is being a body. You've got a, a communication card that you can drop in the offering, or you can hand it at the door as you leave, and we'll follow up if you give us some sort of contact. would love to have a chance to dialogue with you, see what God might be doing. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for making us a family. May we, by the power of your spirit, love one another well and serve one another well, and may we have the grit and the grace to preserve the unity that you've given us as your new family. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.